Officials in Colorado credit two people at an LGBTQ nightclub for stopping the gunman who opened fire there this weekend, preventing even more casualties. It's Monday, November 21st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up... We are a strong community that has shown resilience in the face of hate and violence in the past, and we will do so again. Reaction to the Colorado Springs shooting, which left five people dead and dozens more hurt. Also this hour, 20 years after the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, some want the agency to do more to prevent white supremacist violence. DHS and FBI have failed to effectively measure and share data on the threat posed by violent domestic extremists. And what, if any, progress was made at the Global Climate Summit in Egypt. In sports, the Patriots win. Sunny, near 40 today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The man suspected of carrying out a deadly shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado is expected to face charges that will include first-degree murder. The attack left at least five people dead and more than two dozen injured. Paolo Chalcita with Colorado Public Radio reports a vigil was held last night to remember the victims. The service hosted by Pikes Peak Metropolitan Community Church was one of many across the city as the community sought out spaces to publicly grieve. Pastor Alicia Erickson, a lesbian woman, said these spaces are important for the queer people who have been told by their religious leaders they're not welcome. Far too often that is the narrative, that is the rhetoric that is perpetrated against people in the LGBTQ community. And it is the root of the violence that we saw last night at Club Q against members of our LGBTQ community. Police have not yet determined a motive. For NPR News, I'm Paolo Shalsada in Denver. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden are kicking off the holiday season at the White House today. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports that per tradition, the president will pardon a turkey in a ceremony on the South Lawn, and the First Lady will receive the White House Christmas tree. The White House says this year's turkey and its alternate were raised on a farm near Monroe, North Carolina. The president will take part in the turkey presentation, which marks its 75th anniversary this year. In the afternoon, First Lady Jill Biden will receive the White House Christmas tree, which will be placed in the blue room of the White House. This year's tree comes from a farm in Auburn, Pennsylvania, and stands at 18 and a half feet tall. The Bidens will also travel to the Marine Corps Station in Cherry Point, North Carolina, where they will attend a Friendsgiving dinner with service members and their families. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, the White House. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff says the decision to reinstate the Twitter account of former President Donald Trump is a, quote, terrible mistake. Schiff also says the decision contradicts what Elon Musk, who recently acquired the site, had envisioned for it. It just underscores the the erratic leadership of Twitter now under Musk, but also the security concerns uh, with security people fleeing Twitter uh, and what that means for the protection of Americans' uh, private data. In a tweet on Saturday, Musk announced that Trump's Twitter account had been reinstated after a nearly two-year ban that began in the wake of the January 6th insurrection. Trump recently said he has no reason to return to the site. Stocks across Asia traded mixed today with shares higher in Japan. On Wall Street, Dow futures are trading lower. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. When a police officer loses their job for breaking the law or violating agency rules, it's not always the end of their career in law enforcement. WBUR found more than a dozen officers in Massachusetts landed jobs at other agencies after they were fired or resigned for misconduct. WBUR's Walter Wathman reports. One officer was accused of domestic violence. Another allegedly groped a student. A third was caught drunk driving. But they also landed jobs at new departments. Philip Stinson studies police crime at Bowling Green State. He notes that Massachusetts was among the last states in the country to license police officers and track misconduct. They can move with impunity from agency to agency within the state. And we see that in in New England states uh, and other parts of the country as well. The state's new Peace Officer Standards and Training Commission has started collecting disciplinary information on officers across the state. But it's unclear when the new system will be finished. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Police have identified the student killed in a shuttle bus crash near Brandeis University in Waltham. 25-year-old Vanessa Mark died Saturday night when the school shuttle bus crashed into a tree. It was carrying people back to campus from a hockey game at Northeastern. 27 other people on board were hurt. Police are still investigating what led to the crash. The university says classes will be canceled today and tomorrow. Food insecurity levels now rival those from the early days of the pandemic in Massachusetts. That's according to the food assistance nonprofit Project Bread. The group's CEO, Aaron McAleer, says both inflation and the end of federal assistance programs are exacerbating the problem. She says the best thing people can do to help organizations like hers is to donate money. Financial donations have, hands down, the most impact. There's no question that when um, these organizations have money, that they can be um, more flexible in meeting the needs of the people that we're serving. Donations also fund counselors who connect people to food resources statewide. Today, state transportation leaders will provide details on a project to rebuild the Boker Overpass in Boston. That's the bridge that carries traffic from the Fenway over Calm Avenue and onto Storo Drive. The overpass has been in a state of disrepair and can be treacherous for pedestrians and cyclists. The state says the rehabilitation project is funded and moving forward. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and Public Radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. The Patriots beat the New York Jets 10-3 yesterday in Foxborough for their third straight win. The Pats will visit the Minnesota Vikings on Thanksgiving night. Tonight, the Celtics will visit the Chicago Bulls. The Bruins will be in Tampa to skate with the Lightning. Sunny today and a little windy, high near 40. A cloudy start tonight, but it will clear up. Lows around 30. Sunny tomorrow and in the mid-40s. It should stay dry through Thanksgiving Day. It's 24 degrees in Boston at 707. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin in Washington. 
And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Police in Colorado Springs, Colorado, are investigating why a gunman opened fire in an LGBTQ nightclub late Saturday night. Five people were killed. 25 others were hurt in the attack at Club Q before patrons subdued that gunman. Colorado Public Radio's Dan Boyce is here to catch us up on the latest. Dan, first, let's go over the timeline from Saturday night because all of this happened really fast. Yeah, you know, it really did. So police, they received the first 911 call at 11.56 on Saturday night that a a man had entered the club with multiple firearms and had begun shooting people with a, a rifle. Now, the first officer arrived within four minutes and uh, 22-year-old Anderson Lee Aldrich was in custody just two minutes after that. Still, by that point, more than 20 people had been shot and, and as you say, five of them fatally. And we'd heard that people in the club actually subdued him before police got there. Yeah, it's a remarkable showing of courage. Uh, Officials say at least two individuals fought with Aldrich, you know, hand to hand shortly after he'd entered and they were able to stop his advance. Colorado Springs Mayor John Souther says they did that through one of them grabbing a handgun the suspect was carrying and then hitting him with it. Wow. Um, Do we have any names of any victims? At this point, officials have not released any names of victims nor of those people who confronted Aldrich. My newsroom has confirmed one of those killed was a bartender at the club. 28-year-old Daniel Aston was a trans man who uh, was also performing on Saturday night. The suspect uh, we know remains uh, in the hospital and in police custody. What more do we know about him? Uh, Police say he was hospitalized because he was hurt in that fight with the club patrons who stopped him. We don't know the extent of his injuries, and police say they did not uh, shoot him We do not yet have any word on a motive from investigators, but it may not be his first run-in with local law enforcement. A man by the same name and age was booked in our county jail last year. He'd threatened his his mother with homemade bombs, weapons, and ammunition. Officials did not tell us Sunday how that case was resolved, nor have they actually confirmed that this is the Anderson Lee Aldrich, that it's the same man as the Club Q shooting suspect. Again, though, it's the same name and age. All right. Now, what about um, Club Q itself and also the LGBTQ community in Colorado Springs? How are they handling things? Well, uh, the club is closed until further notice. I visited yesterday and it it was taped off. And, you know, there was one of these large makeshift memorials with flowers and signs, well-wishers and many club regulars. See, uh, Club Q is really the biggest hub for the gay community here. And the people who go there, they know each other. So of course, they're deeply shaken. And one of the hardest elements now is they still don't know which of their friends may have been killed. Still, I spoke with Shanika Mosley. She first moved to Colorado Springs 14 years ago when she was in military service. And she says she hopes the public does not take the wrong lesson about her city, often known for its conservative politics. I've not been held back in any job. I've not been treated any type of way by any friends or by anyone in the community because I'm gay. And so I just don't want people to think that Colorado Springs is like anti-gay. Like, I feel like, honestly, like Colorado Springs is one of the safest places for us. But Mosley does worry Club Q will never quite feel like the same place again. And now Colorado is holding candlelight vigils for the victims like We've done for Columbine, the Aurora Theater shooting, the Boulder grocery store shooting just last year, and others. The state has seen more than its share of tragedies like this. That's Dan Boyce from Colorado Public Radio. Dan, thank you. You're welcome. 
With us now, the police chief of Colorado Springs, Adrian Vasquez. Chief, thank you so much for being with us this morning and our deepest condolences to you and your community there. Well, thank you, Rachel. I appreciate it. Uh, pretty uh, sad event and uh, just horrific. I, I, I thank you for your coverage on it, though. Yeah, we know it's early in the investigation, but is there anything more you can tell us about the gunman? Um, at this point in time, obviously, uh, I late, left late last night, uh, so I haven't been briefed, and I'll receive an, an updated briefing here later this morning. Um, there's not a lot more that I know uh, at this point, uh, mm-hmm. but I know our investigators are working uh, tirelessly to uh, conduct interviews, uh, contact family members and, and other witnesses. So hopefully we'll know a little bit more uh, later this morning. As we just heard from our reporter, there was a man with the same name and age who was taken into custody in June of last year and charged with making bomb threats against his mother, the same name and age as as the gunman uh, who, who attacked the Club Q. Can you confirm that this is the same man? Well, as we do in every investigation, uh, we, of course, look at the history of of, uh, the individual, the suspect in that particular case. At this point in time, our investigators are still um, looking into that. As you can imagine, uh, the focus was on on the scene and processing. So I I should have updated information on on that as part of the investigation. If if and when you can confirm that, though, would it indicate that Colorado's red flag law had been ignored? Well, I, I think uh, when we look into other contacts, it, obviously it's going to depend on what the type of contact was for. Uh, did it fall in uh, the uh, realm of a red flag issue um, and, and uh, you know, or not? So that we don't know at this point in time. The man, the shooter was described as heavily armed. What preparation might have gone into this attack? So uh, he, uh, we know that he was carrying a long gun, and it was an AR-style platform. Uh, and uh, we also know that he had additional uh, multiple magazines uh, with ammunition. Um, so obviously the thought uh, that comes to mind through an investigation like this would be the knowledge uh, that, that that many rounds um, might be able to uh, produce a lot of damage. Um, and, and we know that as soon as he entered into the club, he immediately uh, began firing on individuals. Um, so there was no hesitation on his part to do the damage uh, that he did. Um, and so that speaks to, uh, you know, the preparation that he took for before entering that club. I want to ask you about something the mayor of Colorado Springs, John Southers, told us, uh, our colleagues at NPR's All Things Considered. Let's listen to a, a little bit of that conversation. It certainly has the trappings of a hate crime, but it's too early to... Uh, designated as such because we the motive really is a matter of investigation at this point in time. The shooting did occur just before the Transgender Day of Remembrance. What can you say about a possible motive? Does it look and feel like a hate crime to you? Well, I think I would agree with the mayor, certainly, in, in his comment about the trappings of it appearing, uh, that it could be that. Um, certainly the type of club that it, it, it is, it's an LGBTQ club. Uh, and, and it is on the transge- Transgender Day of Remembrance. So those things piecing together, uh, you know, you would certainly take those into consideration as part of the investigation. Um, I think there's a lot of work to be done before we can come to that determination, like interviews and, and you know, search warrants on things like computers and, and those kinds of things to see what type of sentiment 
uh, he may have posted or, or had, um, but uh, certainly it feels that way. Can you give us a sense of, of the scope of the interviews that you've been doing at this point? Sure. I mean, there's a, a tremendous amount of interviews. Um, I'll, I'll be briefed a little bit uh, more uh, on the amount of individuals that were in the club. The problem is, of course, that individuals will flee, uh, as as anybody might think to do uh, when something like that happens. So our investigators haven't tracked down um, those that were in the club, as well as just interviews with members of family or, or friends that may have known uh, the mm-hmm. suspect. Um, so uh, we'll we'll get a better feel for that as as the interviews uh, continue. Do you believe the shooter was working alone? At this point in time, uh, we believe he was working alone. What uh, we do want to make sure that that we find out was or is uh, whether somebody was helping the individual, you know, potentially get weapons or or understand what the club was about and those kinds of things. Uh, that's part of the ongoing investigation. But as far as the shooting itself, we do believe he was working alone. What's your message message to the community right now? I mean, especially the LGBTQ community who is likely feeling vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and completely understandable. Club Q was a place that they could go uh, that is a safe haven to them. And it is a place they they feel like they should be able to go into uh, without fear of being harmed. Uh, and this community uh, is truly very inclusive. And um, overall, I feel like I want the message to be that the police department stands uh, beside them and will, is here for, for their protection. And it's just, I'm absolutely heartbroken over this. It's sad and it's really just horrific to have somebody evil uh, like this individual doing this kind of act. Colorado, but we are here for uh, the LGBTQ community. Colorado Springs Police Chief Adrian Vasquez, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Mourners, including many in the LGBTQ community, gathered at All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church in Colorado Springs last night to hear words of sorrow, remembrance, and strength. Club Q has been around for 21 years. They were a haven and are still a haven for those of us who have been lost, discarded, discounted. Our hearts break. But we came together today to celebrate a life well-lived in our town. And we shall not be moved. I look at people here, and I see over 20 years worth of people that grew up with Club Q, that changed with Club Q, that made their group of friends at Club Q. And they found their friends, and they found their community there. And last night, last night, one man went into our home and murdered five, murdered five of our community. Nothing should ever get in the way of our love. We will not allow hate to be the thing that takes away our dignity or our joy. The voices of activists Carolyn Cathy, Club Q owner Matthew Haynes, and Nadine Bridges with One Colorado. They spoke at a vigil last night. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, advice from NPR's business desk on how to save money and cope with inflation on Thanksgiving. It's 719. 
Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, helping you find a MedEx Medicare supplemental plan that works for you. Visit BlueCrossMA.com slash go. I'm Robin Young. Jerry Seinfeld is out with the new Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee book based on his former show that did just that. He calls it a valentine to stand-up comics. That's the thing that I discovered doing the show is any comedian sits down with any other comedian and you feel like you grew up together. Next time, here and now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Thanks for starting your morning with 90.9 WBUR. We'll be providing updates today on the situation in Colorado, where investigators are looking for a motive in the shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub that left five people dead. And food distribution centers across the Boston area are kicking into high gear to meet the increased demand for help providing Thanksgiving dinner. We'll check today's top stories in 10 minutes and get the news on your phone all day at WBUR.org. Sunny and windy today with a high near 40, mostly cloudy and still windy tonight with a low temperature right around freezing. You'll want to bundle up if you're heading out to Christopher Columbus Waterfront Park in the North End, where Mayor Wu and others will gather to turn on the Christmas lights tomorrow sunny again and a high near 46. It's 25 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. The American Farm Bureau Federation says almost every ingredient on this year's Thanksgiving menu is now more expensive. So, as NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith reports, you may want to consider some substitutions. In the last two years, Thanksgiving dinner has gotten almost 40 percent more expensive. The Farm Bureau priced out the bare-bones ingredients for Dinner for Ten. They will run you more than 80 bucks. Here at NPR's Business Desk, we cover inflation a lot. We know food prices have hit people especially hard, and we thought there has got to be a way to make this meal cheaper. And we will find it. Kind of like Iron Chef, but for inflation. Welcome to Iron Reporter, Substitutions Giving. We took four reporters and gave them a mission. Take a classic Thanksgiving dish and find an inflation-friendly substitute. Alina Selyuk, I cover low-wage work in the consumer economy. My dish, dinner rolls. I'm Camila Dominoski. I cover cars and transportation. And I brought mashed potatoes and gravy. 
Hi, I'm Scott Horsley. I'm the chief economics correspondent here at NPR, and I decided to make pumpkin pie. I'm Stacey Vanek-Smith, global economics correspondent, and I tackle turkey. With business desk Uri Berliner and intern Mary Yang as our taste testers, we set off on our mission. Get the Thanksgiving grocery bill back to where it was in 2020. First up, dinner rolls. Iron reporter and baker Alina Seljuk found every ingredient that goes into her Thanksgiving rolls has gotten more expensive. Compared to last year, eggs are up 43%. Flour is up 25%. So I searched for the most scaled back recipe I could find for rolls. So I made three ingredient bread, which is flour, yeast, and water. But nobody eats bread alone. Um, Obviously, butter is star of the show. That's up almost 27 percent. Margarine prices up almost 50 percent. Jam, peanut butter, all way up. So Alina got creative with a mystery spread. What is this, though? Um, Does anyone have any guesses? Sesame. Refried beans. It's baby food. It's baby food. Tiny jars, $1.29. Bread? and baby food. The price was right. The taste, though? The bread is delicious, but oh, that's nasty. <laughs> oh, boy. This bread is really good, but it would be a lot better with butter. <laughs> but also a lot more expensive. With the baby food butter and three-ingredient bread, Iron Reporter Alina Seljuk cut 40% off the price of rolls and butter. Mission accomplished. Next up, mashed potatoes. Potatoes have gone up in price by more than 20%, along with the price of the milk you whip into them. Iron reporter Camila Dominoski found her frugal substitute. I decided to swap in beans. These are mashed butter beans. And butter beans, for y'all who aren't from the South, that's just lima beans. Pound for pound, dried lima beans are roughly the same price as potatoes. But the beans feed a lot more people. One pound of potatoes makes two servings. One pound of beans makes 13 servings. Are you serious? You come out on top, like, in a big way when you go for the beans. The mushroom gravy smells great, and the mashed beans look a lot better than I thought they were going to look. They look so similar to potatoes. Yeah, they're a little gray. To top her spudstitutes, Camila chose mushroom gravy. Mushroom prices have risen more slowly than other produce. I think the texture throws me off. I don't know. The mushrooms, however, delicious. I would eat this. With the gravy, you can kind of talk yourself into it a little bit. Yeah. You'd have to but you kind of have to talk yourself into it. Five beards in. <laughs> you could call it five beer, five beer butter beans. Iron reporter Camila's mashed beans and mushroom gravy, 50% cheaper than mashed potatoes. Not counting the beer. Next up, turkey. Almost $30 for a 16-ounce turkey this year. By far the most expensive item on the Thanksgiving table. As Iron Reporter, I set out to find a meat substitute that would feed 10 people and cost less than $18. Chicken, steak, spam, canned tuna, all too pricey. Pork prices, though, have risen a bit less than everything else. I tried pork shoulder, pork butt, even hot dogs. Nothing fit the very low bill. Until I found a meat that needs no toppings or sauces and where a little bit can feed a lot of people. And it is bacon. Bacon's giving. 
I found a family-sized pack of sliced bacon for $4, and a few of those was more than enough. And instead of stuffing, which is up 70% in price, I opted for tomatoes. Tomato prices have not really risen, and you can slice them up and put them between some three-ingredient bread and make a Thanksgiving BLT. Our editor, Uri Berliner, approved. You know, I think like half of America would be ecstatic if there were BLTs instead of turkey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Bacon and tomato, half the cost of turkey and stuffing. Of course, no Thanksgiving is complete without pie. But pumpkin pie is pricey this year. The filling alone is almost 20% more expensive than it was last year. Luckily, Iron Reporter Scott Horsley had a plan. So I knew I wanted to do something with sweet potatoes. Sweet potatoes had a bumper crop this year. They're about a third the price of canned pumpkin. And there is an added bonus. I think sweet potatoes have more flavor than pumpkins. Sweet potatoes actually bring something to the party, I think. Iron reporter Scott Horsley cut the pie cost in half. There you have it, Iron Reporter Inflation Edition. The final meal, three-ingredient bread with baby food, mashed lima beans with mushroom gravy, bacon with tomatoes, and sweet potato pie. The full meal would be around $45. Mission accomplished. This is like a pretty good little meal that we have, right? I think so. I'm not substituting it for my Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Thanksgiving, however you substitute. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, as the U.S. Department of Homeland Security marks the 20th anniversary of the authorization of its creation by Congress, critics worry the agency isn't doing enough to combat domestic extremism, including violent white supremacy. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A local district attorney in Colorado says the man suspected of killing five people at a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs will face charges that likely include first-degree murder. Five people were killed and more than two dozen others were injured in the shooting at Club Q. Police say they're still investigating a motive. A 22-year-old man is under arrest. No arrests have been made in the stabbing deaths of four University of Idaho students. It's been eight days since police discovered their bodies at an apartment near campus. Investigators say they've received hundreds of tips from the community. Aaron Snell is with the state police. We haven't narrowed down a, a motive. We haven't narrowed down what we think to be the person or persons involved in this is. Police in the city of Moscow have been asking for any surveillance video from residences and businesses in certain areas from the early morning hours of November 13th. Crews in and around Buffalo, New York, are still working to clear snow from streets and sidewalks. The area received more than six feet of lake effect snow in this latest storm. Mark Polonarkars is Erie County's executive. We set a record for the largest amount of snow that fell in a 24-hour period, breaking a record that went back to the 1960s. 
The new 24-hour record is 16 inches. Many schools in western New York are closed today. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The local LGBTQ community is reacting to the deadly shooting in Colorado. Polly Crozier is the director of family affairs at the Boston-based GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. She calls the shooting a wake-up call. It's hard for me not to see, particularly working in the LGBTQ movement right now and being an LGBTQ person myself, the rise in attacks on LGBTQ people to me seems to be, you know, just increasing every day. Police are still working to determine if the shooting was a hate crime. One of the suspects in last week's bank robbery on Martha's Vineyard is due in court today. That robbery put a lot of the island on lockdown last Thursday. The person was arrested Saturday. The Cape and Islands District Attorney tells the Boston Globe they aren't releasing the person's name or role in the robbery. Other suspects are still at large. Connecting a dozen North Shore communities to a large regional water supply system could cost as much as $1.2 billion. The cities and towns want to join the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority. That means they would get their water from the Quabbin and Wachusett reservoirs, which supply dozens of other communities, including Boston. The Salem News reports those reservoirs have enough capacity to handle the demand. It's 732. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, performing Handel's Messiah with its Hallelujah Chorus Friday through Sunday at Symphony Hall, HandelandHaydn.org. The Patriots scored the game-winning touchdown yesterday in Foxborough with seconds left in regulation. They beat the New York Jets 10-3. The Pats next play on Thanksgiving night when they'll visit the Minnesota Vikings. The Bruins will go for their seventh win in a row tonight when they visit the Tampa Bay Lightning. The Celtics will try to make it 10 10 wins in a row tonight as they visit the Chicago Bulls. Clear skies, breezy, and near 40 today. Overcast tonight, and it falls to the low 30s. Tomorrow, clear skies again in mid-40s. Sunny on Wednesday, too, with a high near 50. Right now, it's 25 degrees in Boston at 733. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. And from Heifer International, where people can find gifts that make a difference. A goat, chicken, or alpaca can change lives for a family in need. Learn more at heifer.org NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Rachel Martin in Washington, D.C. This week marks two decades since Congress established the Department of Homeland Security. The agency was created after the 9-11 attacks to protect the country against further acts of foreign terrorism. But now there are growing questions about whether DHS is keeping up with evolving threats to the homeland. NPR's domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef joins us now. Good morning, Odette. Good morning, Rachel. 20 years. It's a long time. Um, Can you give us some context about how the threat, the terrorism threat that DHS has been charged to address, how that threat has changed over that time? 
Well, Rachel, when DHS was formed, terrorism was really framed as a problem originating overseas, you know, particularly from hierarchical networked groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Those threats continue today, but there have been huge shifts in the threat landscape, namely an elevated threat now from domestic actors, um, specifically, you know, violent white supremacists and anti-government and militia-aligned extremists. Um, th these often act alone. Um, they can easily act access weapons. Um, and today's DHS is coming under fire for not doing all that it can to counter that new iteration of the threat. So uh, say more about the nuances of that criticism. Well, at a recent congressional hearing uh, with the heads of DHS, FBI, and the National Counterterrorism Center, Michigan Senator Gary Peters hit on a theme that he's been sounding many times over the last three years. DHS and FBI have failed to effectively measure and share comprehensive data on the threat posed by violent domestic extremists and specifically white supremacist and anti-government violence. And Rachel, there has been troubling evidence that indicates DHS has been overly fearful, for example, or simply unskilled when it comes to using some tools that are at its disposal. You know, for example, the Washington Post reported that DHS has slowed down research relying on publicly accessible information about domestic terrorism, um, perhaps as an overcorrection to charges it faced in the 9-11 years of overreach. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, government reports have detailed some embarrassing failures leading up to the January 6th attack, uh, like relying on inexperienced staff to analyze open source information about the threats that were planned for that day. And from Republicans, the criticism has been different. Um, they have been entirely focused on DHS's handling of the migration surge at the southern border. Um, and even though there's no evidence that anyone who poses a threat to national security has crossed into the U.S., um, DHS has been overwhelmed by those numbers. <laughs> and I can't help but but fixate on something you just said a moment ago about the lack of information sharing. Uh, this was totally what happened after 9-11, right? I mean, there were these silos of information, and this was to this was to blame in part for for why intelligence agencies didn't catch 9-11 uh, to begin with. I mean, what does DHS have to say about about all these critiques? Well, DHS hasn't responded yet to questions from NPR. Um, Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas has said that his department could use more funding from Congress to counter this threat. You know, I think realistically, with Republicans set to take control of Congress in January, Rachel, I think DHS is going to face even greater challenges to call out and confront the domestic terrorism threat um, because Republicans really are focused on the border. Um, but there is urgency in addressing this issue. You know, for example, look at the tragic killings at an LGBTQ nightclub over the weekend in mm -hmm. Colorado Springs. The exact cause is still being investigated, but the attack highlights real fears about how hateful rhetoric and a climate of political yeah. violence are evolving and what they could lead to. And Pierre Zodet Youssef. U.S. soccer fans have been waiting eight years to cheer on the men's national team at a World Cup, and that day has finally arrived. <laughs> After missing the last World Cup, the U.S. men play Wales today in their opening match of the 2022 tournament. It's happening in Qatar. There's a whole lot of excitement, but a lot of questions, too, about a young, talented, yet inexperienced American team. NPR's Tom Goldman is in Doha, Qatar, covering all things World Cup. Tom, this would have been a field interview I would have gladly joined you on. But since I'm not there, you are U.S. versus Wales. What are we expecting from both teams today? 
I have no idea. I have traveled all this way to tell you that. And anyone who tells you they do, they're lying, okay? Because both these teams are so new to this, we really don't know what's going to happen. Wales is in its first World Cup since 1958, although this current team has done well in recent years at the European Championships, so it is battle-tested in major events. For the U.S., only one player of the 26 on the roster has played in a World Cup. That's defender DeAndre Yedlin. America is the second youngest team in this tournament, although number of players play for top European clubs and have international experience. One among many questions, A, marks who scores the goals up front. Usually it's the task of a forward striker such as Wales' best player and top scorer veteran Gareth Bale. But throughout U.S. World Cup qualifying, of the 18 goals scored in 14 matches, only four of those goals were from a forward slash striker. Will star Christian Pulisic assert himself, Haji Wright, Gio Reyna to name a few, of course, the U.S. wants goals scored regardless of where they come from. You must score to win. Now, it's being said the group <laughs> that the U.S. And, and Wales are in is the toughest of the eight to 14 groups in this tournament. Does that make this first match even more important? Yeah, it's considered the toughest because the average FIFA ranking for the four teams, U.S., Wales, England, and Iran, is 15th, and that's the highest average of all the groups. There certainly are better teams in other groups, but statistically speaking, Group B is it. Now, England is considered the best in B, so if England beats Iran today, favored to do so, and gets the three points for victory, yes, that puts pressure on the U.S. and Wales to come out with a win today to keep up, or at least the one one point for a draw. Now, this is actually day two of the tournament. It started yesterday mm -hmm. with Qatar facing the country of my parents, the country of my grandparents, and their parents, Ecuador. <laughs> Things have not gone well, though, for the host country on and off the pitch. And congratulations to all of them because they beat Qatar 2-0 and Ecuador pretty much cruised. It was a disturbing scene for organizers. The number of Qatar fans who left early by the end of the match, large parts of the stadium were empty. Qatar had done so much to prepare its team because that team is very much the public face of this country's success or failure at this event. They brought in top coaches, developed players, top training facilities, and it all went in 90 plus minutes yesterday. With the criticism still being directed at Qatar and FIFA on so many fronts, from LGBTQ rights to migrant labor abuses to no beer in the stadiums and the newest controversy, a Euro team captains reportedly abandoning the plan to wear rainbow armbands supporting diversity because they might receive a yellow card as punishment. With all that, the egg laid by Qatar's national team yesterday seemed to reflect the mess this World Cup is, at least at the start. It's only day one. It's only day one or day two, I guess. NPR's Tom Goldman in Doha, Qatar. Tom, thanks. You're welcome. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, we look at the historic agreement reached at the now-completed U.N. Climate Change Summit in Egypt. And in our next hour, a WBUR investigation finds that some Massachusetts police officers who leave departments because of misconduct find homes at other police departments in the state. In your forecast, it's below freezing now and will rise only to near 40 today. There's also some wind. Clouds move in tonight in the low 30s. Tomorrow, sunny and mid-40s, near 50 on Wednesday and sunny. Thanksgiving should be mostly sunny with mid-40s. It's 25 degrees in Boston at 743. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit tackling the world's biggest sustainability challenges, including the climate and water crises. Help Ceres build a just and sustainable future for people and the planet. For Giving Tuesday, your donation to Ceres will be matched. Learn more at ceres.org slash WBUR. Now, in business news, the crash of the second-largest cryptocurrency exchange, FTX, is causing some local aftershocks. Many in the state's tech industry say there will be a chilling effect on projects that use blockchain, the same type of technology used to make crypto. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer has more. The total value of blockchain companies in Massachusetts was around $12 billion as of June. State Representative Kate Lipper-Garabedian says despite the recent scandals involving cryptocurrency, blockchain is not likely to disappear. Cryptocurrency remains only one way in which we use blockchain technology, and there are many other practices in which it can be deployed that are going to be critical and frankly become integrated into the way we do business. Lipper Garabedian has filed legislation to create a commission on blockchain. That group would make recommendations on supporting and regulating the blockchain industry in Massachusetts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food on the web at theschmidt.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. World leaders have reached a new agreement on climate change after negotiations ran into overtime at the climate summit in Egypt over the weekend. The deal includes a historic step to help developing countries pay for the rising costs of climate disasters. But will it do enough to stop climate change? Lauren Summers here from NPR's Climate Desk to help answer that question. All right, Lauren, so this was a make-or-break moment for developing countries who say richer countries are not doing enough on climate change. Did they get what they want out of these talks? This was a pretty big step forward for them. Um, You know, developing countries arrived at these negotiations with a very clear demand. They want compensation for the cost of the disasters they're experiencing, things like rising sea levels and extreme storms and floods. Sherry Rahman, Pakistan's climate minister, arrived at the talks after flooding in her country displaced millions of people and caused more than $30 billion in damage. Because if the planet is burning up, We are burning up in the front line. We are the ground zero of that climate change. So we are seeing that burn while we are not contributing to that burn. You know, unlike richer countries, developing countries have done little to cause climate change. Their pollution is low. So that's why they fought for compensation for this loss and damage, as it's called. Okay, so will richer countries such as the U.S. actually start to pay out for that soon? 
Not exactly soon. Um, Over the next year, countries will meet to figure out what a new fund for climate damages might look like. And there are already tensions over who will pay for it, because the U.S. and Europe, they're the biggest emitters historically. China is the world's largest emitter now. And China pushed back against this idea of being on the hook for these payments, because under the U.N. framework, they're still considered a developing country. The U.S. will also have a challenge getting money for this with a divided Congress, because Republicans are not likely to support payments for this kind of climate aid. But a Republican delegation did go to these climate talks to argue that there's Mm. a place for fossil fuels. So what did the global agreement have to say about oil and gas? There was a big push at these talks to get countries to commit to phasing down all fossil fuels. The U.S. supported it, so did many developing countries, about 80 in all. In the end, though, it was not part of the agreement. And that caused a lot of frustration, like from Franz Timmermans, who leads the climate delegation for the European Union. We should have done much more. Our citizens expect us to lead. That means far more rapidly reduce emissions. That's how you limit climate change. The pushback came from Saudi Arabia and other oil producing countries that didn't want fossil fuels singled out. I guess the big question is then whether global leaders did enough at these talks. So are missions going to fall fast enough to make an actual difference on climate change? Yeah, the short answer is no. Um, The world was not on track when the talks began, and they're not on track leaving this summit. In a best case scenario, if the world follows through on their promises, emissions will be about 10% lower in 2030 than they would be without any reductions. But the science says emissions need to fall by 45% by then. And, and that's to avoid impacts that get much more dangerous with more warming, you know, things like rising oceans and powerful storms. So, you know, this just ups the stakes for next year because the longer countries wait, the steeper the emissions cuts will need to be if countries want to avoid more catastrophic damage from rising temperatures. That's Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk. Lauren, thanks. Thanks. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Another hour of Morning Edition is coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning, Rupa. We are going uh, very from the newsroom mm-hmm. today. We've got, you know, reporters telling great stories all the time. So today we have two different stories from WBUR reporters. We're going to dive beneath the headlines on those. First, Beth Healy and their investigation into title insurance, which Mm -hmm. sounds boring, actually really interesting and really important. It turns out it's unregulated here in Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. which means you could be paying fees that don't get you your title insurance in order to get title insurance for a house. And with interest rates already what they are, nobody can afford to be paying extra right right now. That was an amazing investigation. Yeah, exactly. And then we'll also have Walter Wuthman, who has done uh, reporting on a shuffling of police officers who face disciplinary action or firing in one department. And then it turns out they are able to turn up in another department in the Commonwealth a couple of years later, working again, sometimes with the second department not even knowing Mm -hmm. about their history at the first. Yeah, it was really fascinating how he's attributing it in part to a 
a silence among officers. That's right. That's right. And there are things like uh, there are new certification processes, et cetera, but not enough off the ground yet. Okay. All right. Thank you, Tiziana. Have a good time. All right. That's Radio Boston today at 11 and 3. Right now it's 7.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. When I talk to people in my field, I say, you hear me on the radio, even in California or in Michigan or in Austin. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. WBUR allows me to be both local and national. Supporting WBUR really works for us. To become a WBUR underwriter, go to WBUR.org sponsorship. 7.52 Sunny, windy, and near 40 today. Mostly cloudy and low 30s tonight. Tomorrow, sunny in the mid-40s, then near 50 on Wednesday and sunny. It's 26 degrees in Boston at 752. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Rachel Martin. Some nostalgia now. 50 years ago this month, a particular album was released. It was a personal project that would go on to become a gold record and a television special and a book and a foundation and the anthem of a generation. Dina Pritchett tells the story of Free to Be You and Me. For so many people, all it takes to bring childhood rushing back are these opening bars. The jangly banjo, the skipping rhythm, and that vision. The title song of Free to Be You and Me lays out a kid's utopia, freedom to be who you truly are. But in 1972, that wasn't the message kids were getting. Actor Marlo Thomas discovered that reading a bedtime story to her five-year-old niece. And I said to my sister, these books are so old-fashioned. The prince is going to come along and kiss her and the whole world's going to be okay. I mean, it took us years to get over that. And that's when I decided that I wanted to create a project for children that said that they were free to be anything they wanted to be. Thomas was fresh off starring in the popular sitcom That Girl and had a ton of connections. I gathered some very talented people like Herb Gardner and Mel Brooks and Shel Silverstein and Patty Chayefsky and Ed Kleban, who got the Pulitzer Prize for the chorus line. In late night sessions at Thomas's apartment, they talked about what kind of songs and poems and stories they wanted to tell and what kind of world they wanted to live in. I gathered these people around and I said to them, if you could have anything said to you, when your childhood, what would you have wanted it to be? And Herb Gardner said, I would have liked to have been told that it was all right for a boy to cry. And from that came It's All Right to Cry, the wonderful song by Carol Hall. It's all right to cry. Crying gets the sad out of you. It's all right to cry. It might make you feel better. And I said, I would have liked to have been told that at the end of every fairy tale, the girl, the princess doesn't have to marry the prince and that she doesn't have to be a blonde all the time. So then we did Atlanta, 
But now Atalanta is still off in the world, visiting towns and cities. And John is still sailing the seas. Perhaps someday they'll be married, and perhaps they will not. In, in any case, case, it is certain they are both living happily ever after. In 1972, these messages were revolutionary. When the free-to-be television special came out a few years later, Thomas had to fight the networks to show a scene of her and the black singer and actor Harry Belafonte just pushing strollers together. Married women couldn't even get their own credit cards. But this was also a time that so much was starting to change. Letty Cotton Pogrebin worked on Free to Be You and Me. For so long, people had not questioned gender roles. They just were the norm. And suddenly, all around us were um, consciousness-raising groups and marches and caucuses at workplaces. Cotton Pogrebin is one of the founding editors of Ms. Magazine, which began earlier that same year, and sees that same revolutionary spirit in Free to Be. It really reaches into the soul of the child and it says, I see you, I see who you are, and we're going to support the best you that you can become. And, you know, kids have the purest sense of justice of anybody. They just say, it's not fair that I can't do this. Why can't I do this? The songs and stories on Free to Be showed kids that they could question the world they lived in, that parents are just people, that emotions are real, and what's on TV might not be. That lady is smiling because she's an actress and she's earning money for learning those speeches that mention those wonderful soaps and detergents and cleansers and cleaners and powders and pastes and waxes and bleaches. Carol Channing was just one of a whole cast of celebrities on the album. Diana Ross, Alan Alda, Rosie Greer. For the kids, this meant amazing performances. But it offered something for parents, too. Role models saying that pushing back on gender norms and crying and being yourself were okay. And it got the album into schools and libraries and homes across the country. Musician Kimya Dawson grew up with it. Me and my best friend, Pierre, used to sit around and we had the book and we had the record and we loved William Wants a Doll. When my friend William was five years old, he wanted a doll to hug and hold. A doll, said William, is what I need to wash and clean and dress and feed a doll. For a tomboy growing up in the 70s, this provided affirmation. And as the culture shifted in the 80s, it was a source of support. Even as a teen, I was still listening to it when my older brother was in Desert Storm. I sent him a copy of the book while he was deployed. And I knew, you know, the messages that were being sort of forced onto the young soldiers over there. And I just wanted to make sure that he held on to some of that kindness and friendship and feeling your feelings. Making noise and making faces and making friends like you. Kids today who feel alone in their family or their town can find community with just a TikTok search. But 50 years ago, this album was a lifeline. Marla Thomas says she still hears that. So many people, you know, stop me on the street, gay men who say, when that song came out, you saved my life. 
When I heard William Wants a Dog, I thought, I'm going to be okay. Over the past 50 years, there have been huge changes when it comes to gender and family in this country. Some of this album is dated. But so much still resonates. Every generation needs this album or something like it because the issues are the same. The world continues to question these things. And I think we have to be ready with the answers. Which are, it's all right to cry. It's all right to wonder and to feel things. And that you and me are free to be you and me. For NPR News, I'm Dina Pritchett. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody. And this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury. 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR News station. Officials credit patrons with overpowering a gunman who fatally shot at least five people and injured 25 more at a Colorado LGBTQ nightclub. It's Monday, November 21st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a WBUR investigation finds many Massachusetts police officers who are fired or quit one department over misconduct are finding jobs in other departments due to what some say is an unofficial policy of silence. They don't share their dirty laundry. They rely on being able to trust each other, and that requires being able to maintain secrecy and uh, going about their business. Also this hour, Ukrainian officials say Russia is targeting the country's ability to heat and power homes. Plus, closing arguments in the trial of Oath Keepers members charged in the January 6th attack. In sports, the Patriots win sunny and around 40 today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. President Biden has approved a request for a federal emergency declaration for New York State after an early season winter storm dumped more than six feet of snow in some areas. Emily Watkins from member station WBGO reports the storm has stopped, but recovery efforts are expected to present numerous challenges. The winter storm that hit western New York has finally tapered out, leaving parts of the area buried under anywhere from a few inches to six and a half feet. That's as tall as Buffalo Bills quarterback Josh Allen. The challenge is once this much snow is plowed, it has to go somewhere, creating even larger piles. Daniel Harrig owns a private snowplow business. You know, seven feet stacked uh, turns into 14 and turns into 20. Many roads and schools are still closed as communities continue to dig themselves out. For NPR News, I'm Emily Watkins in Buffalo. Police in Colorado say an investigation is underway into a shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub that left at least five people dead. More than two dozen others were injured in the attack. Colorado Public Radio's Dan Boyce reports authorities are still trying to determine a motive. Police, they received the first 911 call at 11.56 on Saturday night that a a man had entered the club with multiple firearms and had begun shooting people with a a rifle. Now, the first officer arrived within four minutes, and uh, 22-year-old Anderson Lee Aldrich was in custody just 
Two minutes after that, still, by that point, more than 20 people had been shot. That's Dan Boyce from Colorado Public Radio reporting. The community of Colorado Springs came together last night for a memorial service to honor the five people who died in the attack. Officials say flags will fly at half-staff in the state capitol for the next five days. Russian and Ukrainian forces are waging sustained battles in the eastern part of Ukraine. NPR's Craig Myrie reports the fighting is spread over a wide part of the Donbass region. In his nightly video address, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Russia fired more than 400 artillery rounds at Ukrainian positions in the east on Sunday. This daily fighting in the Donbass region has been overshadowed recently by other developments in the war. But the Ukrainian military cited battles in 10 separate eastern areas on Sunday. Neither side reported any breakthroughs. The Ukrainians did strike an oil depot in Russian-controlled territory, igniting a large nighttime blaze. After a lightning offensive by Ukraine in September, the front lines in the east have barely budged in the past two months. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv. On Wall Street, Dow futures are trading lower. This is NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Classes are canceled today and tomorrow at Brandeis University after a weekend bus crash. One student died and more than two dozen other people were hurt. The school identified the victim as 25-year-old undergraduate student Vanessa Mark. Brandeis Senior Vice President for Communications Dan Kim says the school is focusing on providing support to affected students. We are most concerned about the health and safety of our community and we're providing mental health support at this time. Investigators say the shuttle bus crashed into a tree Saturday night, but they have not said exactly what led up to the crash. Governor Charlie Baker says he will not be running for president in 2024. There had been some speculation he might explore a bid. Baker tells WCVB's On the Record that he will be involved in the presidential campaign somehow, but not as a candidate. If I was looking at this point in my career to engage in, continue to engage in public service, I think Lauren and I and, and, and Karen Polito, the lieutenant governor, and her husband Steve would have run for another term. Baker adds he believes it's time for the Republican Party to move on from Donald Trump. He says voters from both the GOP and the Democratic Party are not interested in extreme candidates. Thousands of families have enough food for a Thanksgiving meal thanks to food giveaways this weekend in the Boston area. As WBUR's Amanda Beeland reports, some organizations are using these events to to connect people in need with other support systems. Beth Chambers of Catholic Charities may have been distributing turkeys on Saturday, but she was also on the lookout. You know, we try to capture as much as we can when a person walks in the door. People picking up food may also need help with paying their rent or a utility bill or finding daycare. The Salvation Army's Croc Center was also giving out turkeys. Major L.V. Carter says he and his staff are always looking for ways to help. We actually have social workers along with our volunteers so they can connect them in other services that the Salvation Army provides. Carter says lately his center has logged a 50 percent increase in requests for support. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. A Charlestown man is being honored for his participation in the Boston Tea Party. A marker was placed yesterday on the grave site of Elifalette Newell. It's part of an initiative from the Boston Tea Party Ships and Museum to mark the graves of everyone who was part of the Tea Party in 1773. Over 100 plaques have been placed so far. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. It was a thrilling end to an otherwise boring Patriots game yesterday in Foxborough. The Pats returned a punt for a game-winning touchdown with seconds left. They beat the New York Jets 10-3. The Pats will play again Thursday night. That's when they'll visit the Minnesota Vikings. The Celtics will be in Chicago tonight to face the Bulls. The Bruins are in Florida to skate with the Tampa Bay Lightning. And the U.S. men's soccer team begins play in the World Cup today in Qatar. The U.S. takes on Wales at 2 p.m., it's a big day for the American Outlaws, a group of U.S. supporters. Evan Cipriano is with the group's Boston chapter. He says it's especially exciting since the U.S. did not qualify for the World Cup four years ago. Yeah, I'm in my mid-30s, and I'd never seen a World Cup without the U.S. participating. So 2018 came as a, a massive shock to everyone. We'll have more on the World Cup coming up in a few minutes here on Morning Edition. Sunny today and a little windy. Pioneer 40, a cloudy start tonight, but it will clear up. Lows around 30. Sunny tomorrow and in the mid-40s, it should stay dry through Thanksgiving Day. It's 26 degrees in Boston at 8.08. WBUR supporters include The Little Market, a nonprofit dedicated to the economic empowerment of women and underserved communities, offering artisan-made goods, home decor, and gifts with a commitment to fair trade. TheLittleMarket.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. A weekend attack at Club Q in Colorado Springs is the second mass shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub in six years. The gunman who opened fire Saturday night killed five people and wounded 25. In 2016, 49 were killed and more than 50 hurt at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida. Last night, a vigil in Orlando honored the victims in Colorado. Eddie Meltzer survived the Pulse massacre. He joins us now to talk about what the recovery may look like in Colorado Springs. Eddie, thanks uh, for joining us. When you first heard that five people were killed and at least 25 were injured at Club Q in Colorado Springs, what went through your mind and your heart? It was very sad. It obviously brought back memories, and I felt immediate pain for the relatives of these family members that have died. Did it bring back memories of what happened in Florida? It did. And um, actually, I found out because someone from uh, a family member from the Pulse nightclub called me and asked me how I was doing. And um, I asked why, and they explained to me what happened. And it was, I was more counseling her. It was her grief that eventually made me realize that this brought back for a lot of people many memories. Yeah, in 2016 at Pulse, 49 people were killed, 53 wounded. I mean, you lost five friends. I mean, how did that tragedy change you? It changed everything for me. I learned to see the world in a different way. I learned that uh, we live in a realm where there's clearly darkness and light, and we get to choose what we want to be part of. And there's always going to be 
bad people and there's always going to be good people. Our job is to always create as much love and as much light as we can for everybody. How much of that made you angry? I was never angry. I know that sounds weird. I just understand that um, I just felt bad for this youth in my belief. I believe that the problem with all these shootings in our country come from a place where when this country learns to love their children more than they love their corporations and their money, that's when we will heal. I don't see sides. I don't see genders, races. I think that it is a big mental health problem and is basically stemmed from lack of love and light. Eddie, you became a, a source of support for your community after the massacre. What did families tell you about what they were feeling at that time? They felt like they were in a limbo. They, they, at the beginning, the first stage, it wasn't even grief or anger. It was complete uh, limbo. They were they, denial. They just couldn't accept that this happened and disbelief, complete disbelief. And that was the first thing that I noticed is that they, a lot of them just kept thinking that their loved one was going to come back, you know, through the door or somebody was going to tell them that they found them, uh, even though they have already been told they died, complete disbelief. And then it took for a lot of these families a while to uh, really accept that their loved one was no longer with us. What would you like to say to the families in Colorado who are now experiencing some of those same things that people experienced in Florida? I know this is harsh, and I know that um, from experience and from working with many families from the pollution, that it will get better. It will get better, and what's important is that we understand that this is not a punishment. This is how we grow. This is how we change. And, you know, I, I like to believe that Sadly, these people that die are angels that come to teach us lessons. But it will get better. That, that for sure it will get better. And that the best way this gets better is when they help each other, when the families start getting together. That's one thing I saw is that many of the families from the Pulse shooting became uh, friends and, you know, nuclear families, and they helped each other. And from that came a lot of light that helped a lot of people heal. Eddie Meltzer is a survivor of the 2016 mass shooting at Pulse Nightclub in Orlando, Florida. Eddie, thanks for sharing your thoughts. Of course. The Ukrainian government says Russian missile and drone strikes have disabled nearly half of the country's energy systems. Ukrainian officials believe the targeted strikes are intended to break their population's will to fight as temperatures dip. NPR's Nathan Rott reports on Russia's efforts to weaponize the coming winter. The electrical substation Mikhailo Voyanov wants to show us sits at the end of a rubble-strewn dirt road, past a red toy car half-buried in mud. He opens a gashed metal door to show us the equipment inside. There are a lot of damage from shrapnel, but this one is the worst. He reaches into the substation and knocks on its main component, a transformer. You see, the sound is the same. Uh-huh. It means that there is no oil there. Ah, it's empty. So I think there's a hole somewhere. 
Voyanov is an electrician in this northeast corner of Ukraine. It was formerly occupied by Russians before Ukraine took it back, but you can still hear the sound of artillery and tanks fighting like thunder in the distance. How long do you think it's going to take for Ukraine to fix all this stuff, all uh, the electrical stuff? Oh. A couple of years at least, he says, and thousands of dollars for this one substation alone. Russia's attacks on Ukraine's energy and heating infrastructure have been going on since the start of its invasion, nearly nine months ago. But they've intensified immensely as winter has approached, with repeated near-weekly attacks targeting thermal power plants, electrical substations, and centralized heating facilities. In an email to NPR, Ukraine's energy ministry says the attacks have intensified significantly because of Russia's losses on the battlefield. Their goal, the energy ministry says, is to destroy Ukraine's entire energy supply chain. In big cities like Kyiv and Kharkiv, power outages and blackouts are now a way of life. At small, heavily damaged villages like this one in northeastern Ukraine, the few residents who remain are planning to be without power for months. Oleksandr Lesitsky is relying on a wood-fired boiler to warm his home. Are you worried about it being too cold this winter? We've got the wood, but... Shh, because he's not supposed to have it. The wood he's collecting comes from the mine-riddled forest behind his home. There are lots of broken trees there, so we can just collect it. At a picnic table outside Lisitsky's home, next to a shattered Buddha statue that sits next to a small pond, Mikhailo Voyanov, the electrician, uses jars of cookies and mugs of steaming coffee to explain what Russia is doing to Ukraine's energy sector. Litsitsky and his wife, Svetlana Malirova, listen intently. There are power sources, gas and coal thermal power plants, hydroelectric dams, nuclear power stations. And then there are the series of substations that help distribute that power. Because then you can't move any of that power to any of the smaller substations or to people. Attacks that also make it harder for Ukraine to pull in electricity from Europe. Oleksandr Karchenko, the director of the Energy Industry Research Center, says Russia knows this. That's why, in the last two months, they've specifically targeted these types of facilities. Substations, a lot of them, it's not possible to cover each of them by uh, special air defense. That's why they are more vulnerable. More vulnerable than larger power stations to the kinds of long-range missile and drone strikes that Russia now depends on. Marisha Zapashnik, the International Rescue Committee's Ukraine director, says NGOs like hers have been trying to prepare people for the cold, giving out electric heat lamps and wool blankets. But she says... The assistance provided by humanitarian NGOs by the UN will not be enough. It's simply not enough. The number of people involved, if there are large parts of the country that have absolutely no source of heating, 
for sure we will need a lot more assistance. From countries such as the U.S., which recently announced $55 million in assistance specifically for heating and repairing homes. Everywhere you go in Ukraine, people are preparing, storing firewood, fixing windows with plastic sheets and plywood. In Izum, a northeastern Ukrainian town that was occupied by Russia, Halina Zagorodny walks up a cold set of stairs to her one-bedroom apartment. The 71-year-old spent much of the invasion living in her apartment building's basement with more than 100 of her neighbors. Now she's back in her damaged home. A small electric heat lamp given to her by an aid organization is the only source of heat in her home. Zagorodny is planning to spend the winter here at home even though electricity has been intermittent and the gas line has been punctured by shrapnel. What happens if electricity goes out? How will you stay warm in here? Honestly, I don't know what I'll do, she says. I don't want to go anywhere else. Maybe, she says with a smile, I'll burn my books. Make it work because what else, she asks, is she supposed to do? Nathan Rott, NPR News, Izum, Ukraine. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up on Morning Edition, a WBUR investigation finds many Massachusetts police officers who are fired or quit one department over misconduct successfully move on to serve in other police departments in the state. And in 20 minutes, why antibody infusion treatment is being phased out for COVID-19 patients. It's 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com careers. Join WBUR for a Boston holiday tradition like no other, our annual live reading of A Christmas Carol on Tuesday evening, December 20th. Your favorite WBUR voices perform the classic story live at the Omni Parker House in Boston. Proceeds benefit Rosie's Place, a sanctuary for women in need. Details at WBUR.org slash events. Come out for the season and Rosie's Place. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. Sunny and windy today with a high near 40. Mostly cloudy and still windy tonight with a low temperature right around freezing. It'll clean up, clear up overnight and be sunny again tomorrow with a high near 46. Right now it's 26 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft used by millions globally. Learn more at KeeperNPR.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at ZQuill.com. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy 
clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. You may expect that a police officer who loses their job for something like drunk driving or sexual assault would no longer be able to serve in law enforcement. But a WBUR investigation shows many officers who were fired or quit over misconduct simply moved to a new department in Massachusetts. WBUR's Walter Wuthman begins with the story of a policeman with a troubled past who's now working in the western part of the state. It's late at night on a highway on the outskirts of Seattle. A Washington state trooper sees a car drifting between lanes and pulls the driver over. Hello, sir. Super call with the Washington State Patrol. We want everybody recorded. The reason I stopped is because of your lane travel. The driver's name is Adam Pecos, and he's drunk. He's also a police officer in Irving, Massachusetts. The 2018 dash cam video shows Pecos handcuffed in the squad car, begging the trooper to let him go. The audio is a bit hard to hear, but he talks about his years of military and police service. Trooper, this is my life. Everything that I've worked for, 16 years in the military, six years in police. He hopes the officer will consider that. I just wish you would take that into consideration. Pecos was arrested for driving under the influence and taken to the station. His blood alcohol level was nearly twice the legal limit. This wasn't the first time Pecos was caught driving drunk while off duty. He made headlines in 2012 when he was working for the state police. Duty after reports that he was seen driving down the wrong way of the street on Memorial Drive in Cambridge. Trooper Adam Pecos was stopped by... The incident on Memorial Drive was widely publicized. But WBUR obtained disciplinary records showing state police caught Pecos driving under the influence two more times over the next month. Investigators found Pecos totaled his Nissan while intoxicated on the Sagamore Bridge in Bourne. And he was caught driving 85 miles per hour in West Bridgewater while smelling of alcohol. All three times, troopers on scene let him go. But supervisors later heard about the incidents and investigated. Here's state police spokesman David Procopio speaking to WCVB-TV. He was placed on restricted duty, which essentially means desk duty. His cruiser and his department weapon and any state police identification has been revoked from him. Pecos was later fired, just four months after he graduated from the police academy. A few years later, though, Pecos got a new job in Irving, a small town north of Amherst. That's where he was working in 2018 when he was arrested for drunk driving in Washington state. But Pecos didn't lose his job. He got a promotion. Here's Irving Police Chief Robert Holst recommending Pecos be made sergeant at a town select board meeting last year. I think he brings a lot to the table. He will be a tremendous asset. Uh, not only to to me personally, but to the patrol, to you, uh, the board, and to this town. The board voted unanimously to promote him. We tried to ask Irving town officials why they hired Pecos after state police fired him. We also wanted to ask why Irving promoted Pecos after his DUI in Washington state. But the town administrator said they would not discuss, quote, personnel matters. And Sergeant Pecos did not return our calls. WBUR found over a dozen officers like Pecos who landed jobs at other agencies after they were fired or resigned after a misconduct investigation in Massachusetts. There are likely many more. It's something that we see in in numerous states across the country. We call it the officer shuffle. Bowling Green state criminologist Philip Stinson says it may be especially easy for officers to find new jobs in states like Massachusetts. 
The state has many small departments and historically lacked a centralized system to track officers accused of wrongdoing. There's really a, uh, a cone of silence over policing. They don't share their, their dirty laundry. They rely on being able to trust each other, and that requires being able to maintain secrecy and uh, going about their business. Stinson argues that secrecy enables some problem officers to slip through the cracks. Take what happened at UMass Dartmouth. According to a university police report, an undergrad was walking home late one night when campus police officer David Loudon pulled over and offered to give her a ride back to her dorm. After dropping her off, the student told university police Loudon hugged her and grabbed her breast. He later sent her a text saying he wanted to go to bed with her. She said Loudon, quote, felt her up again at a fire drill. And after she complained to the school, she said he kept calling her. Loudon resigned in 2010, after the university started investigating. But UMass never announced the allegations or his departure, and Loudon later found work in another town nearby. Blackstone police hired Loudon in 2013 and assigned him to work with children as a school resource officer, including at the local high school. He's also one of the department's sexual assault investigators. Blackstone police wouldn't answer questions about Loudon's hiring, despite repeated attempts to get in touch over email, on the phone, and in person. Hi, Hi I'm Walter. I'm a reporter with uh, WBUR. I'm wondering if Chief Gilmore is in. The chief was not in and did not call back. Officer Loudon also didn't respond to our requests for an interview. But the town administrator said she was concerned when we asked her about the allegations against Loudon at UMass Dartmouth. She asked to see the records. A few days later, she said they'd removed him from the schools and started an investigation. Massachusetts is trying to stop the officer shuffle. Two years ago, lawmakers created the Peace Officer Standards and Training Commission to track officer misconduct. The agency also has the power to bar officers from working anywhere in the state. Here's the commission's executive director, Enrique Zuniga. This is central to our mission. Uh, It's very much in our minds. We also have to build the infrastructure to be able to do it deliberatively and, you know, and carefully. Zuniga says the commission is still gathering records of officers who've been disciplined. But the agency declined to share the data it's collected so far or even provide an estimate for how many accused officers have moved on to new departments. And it's unclear what, if anything, the commission will do about them. Meanwhile, officers like Loudon and Blackstone and Pecos and Irving remain on the job. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up on Morning Edition, jurors in the trial of five members of the far-right group The Oath Keepers are hearing closing arguments. The men are charged with seditious conspiracy for their role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science, with seasonal exhibit All Aboard Trains at Science Park, plus 4D and Omni Theater adventures like the Polar Express. Tickets at MOS.org.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The man suspected of carrying out a deadly weekend shooting at a gay nightclub in Colorado is expected to face charges that include first-degree murder. Five people were killed and more than two dozen were injured at Club Q in Colorado Springs. Investigators say the 22-year-old suspect was subdued by people at the club and injured after the shooting began. Adrian Vasquez is the police chief in Colorado Springs. We know that he was carrying a long gun, and it was an AR-style platform. Uh, and we also know that he had additional uh, multiple magazines uh, with ammunition. Vasquez was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. Police say they're still investigating a motive. The U.S. plays its first match this afternoon at the Men's World Cup Soccer Tournament in Cotter. NPR's Tom Goldman says up first for Team USA is Wales. Both these teams are so new to this, we really don't know what's going to happen. Wales is in its first World Cup since 1958, although this current team has done well in recent years at the European Championships, so it is battle-tested in major events. For the U.S., only one player of the 26 on the roster has played in a World Cup. That's defender DeAndre Yedlin. America is the second youngest team in this tournament, although a number of players play for top European clubs. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Local members of the LGBTQ community are reacting to the deadly shooting in Colorado. Polly Crozier is the Director of Family Affairs at the Boston-based GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. She says members of that community are facing a rising number of threats and violence. I think the bomb scares on Children's Hospital have been scary. I think that this notion that people are trying to do whatever they can to restrict transgender people from getting access to medical care, from kind of being who they are. Police are still working to determine if the shooting in Colorado Springs was a hate crime. Companies that want to get into the sports betting game here in Massachusetts face a critical deadline today. WBUR's Fausto Menard explains. Applicants seeking a mobile or online sports betting license must submit a $200,000 non-refundable fee to the Massachusetts Gaming Commission by 2 o'clock this afternoon. 30 companies have expressed an interest in such a permit. The state plans to award up to seven such licenses. The Gaming Commission's Loretta Lilio says she's keeping close tabs on the deadline. This is an uh, important time for the operators. We have been meeting with them. We have been answering their questions, and I know that they are working hard Uh, on their applications. Massachusetts gaming regulators plan to launch in-person sports betting at the state's casinos and slot parlor by January. Mobile and online sports betting is expected to begin by early March. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The Frog Pond on Boston Common opens today for the skating season. The Skating Club of Boston makes and maintains the ice on the pond. Doug Zebheib is the group's president and CEO. He says beyond skating, there are other amenities available for the family. There's a cafe there. We have specialty like hot chocolates and ciders and mac and cheese and Belgian waffles. So uh, you can go and have a complete experience there. Skating begins this morning at 10. It's 8.33.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, performing Handel's Messiah with its Hallelujah Chorus Friday through Sunday at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. The Patriots beat the New York Jets 10-3 yesterday in Foxborough. The Pats scored the winning touchdown with seconds left in regulation. They'll play again Thanksgiving night when they visit the Minnesota Vikings. The Celtics will try for their 10th win in a row tonight when they visit the Chicago Bulls. The Bruins are going for their seventh straight win tonight. They'll visit the Tampa Bay Lightning. Clear skies, breezy, and near 40 today. Overcast tonight, and it falls to the low 30s. Clearing overnight tomorrow, clear skies again, and mid-40s. Sunny on Wednesday, too, with a high near 50. It's 26 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jopaigo, part of Johns Hopkins, and dedicated to saving lives, improving health, and transforming the future of women. Their name is challenging, but so is their work at jhpiego.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Closing arguments resumed today in the January 6th seditious conspiracy trial against Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and four other defendants. They're accused of plotting to use force to prevent Joe Biden from taking office. NPR Justice correspondent Ryan Lucas has been covering the trial. Ryan, closing arguments began on Friday with the government. Uh, how did prosecutors try to sum up things for the jury? Well, Assistant U.S. Attorney Catherine Ricosi presented for the government, and she spoke for about two hours, and she began her closing arguments with a quote from Rhodes himself, a message that Rhodes had sent just two days after the 2020 election. And in that message, Rhodes says, quote, we're not getting through this without a civil war. Prepare your mind, body, and spirit. And Ricosi said, look, jury, here's Rhodes calling for civil war to oppose the results of the election. And then she walked the jury back through what she called a mountain of evidence. So text messages, videos, testimony that they've seen over the past seven weeks. That includes evidence uh, of an armed quick reaction force waiting on standby on January 6th at a hotel in Virginia to ferry guns into D.C. if necessary. Uh, it includes Oath Keepers dressed in tactical gear, forcing their way into the Capitol on January 6th. And it includes a lot of inflammatory texts uh, and, and recordings with talk of violence and war and fighting to keep Trump in power. And Ricosi argued that all of this shows that these five defendants uh, conspired to disrupt by any means necessary, including force, uh, the peaceful transfer of power. Okay, what about the defense? What do they say in closing? Well, in, in his closing argument, Rhodes' attorney James Bright told jurors that uh, he made a point over the course of this trial of asking every witness that he uh, questioned three questions. Was there a plan to storm the Capitol? Was there a plan to breach the rotunda? And was there a plan to stop the election certification? And he said that there have been about 50 witnesses in the case and not a single one testified that there was a plan. Uh, Bright acknowledged that Rhodes and his co-defendants did use a lot of hot talk, what Bright called a horribly heated rhetoric and bombast. Uh, and Bright said he himself doesn't agree with that, but he said venting is not a meeting of the minds. Expressing hatred, expressing anger isn't a meeting of the minds. And with no concrete plan to storm the Capitol or disrupt Congress's certification of the vote, he said 
there can't be a seditious conspiracy. Rhodes himself did not enter the Capitol on January 6th, Bright said. Rhodes didn't fight police. So he asked the jury, what in fact did Rhodes really do? And then he urged the jury uh, as he closed up uh, to find Rhodes not guilty on all counts. All counts. So what else are Rhodes and the others charged with? Well, the key charge here really is seditious conspiracy. The government rarely brings that charge, uh, and it carries a maximum sentence of 20 years. So it is a big deal. Uh, but there are other charges, yes. There's, uh, they're also charged with two other conspiracy counts related to disrupting Congress on January 6th, uh, as well as obstruction. And then some of them also face other charges like destruction of evidence, civil disorder, destruction of government property. All right. What happens today? Well, we'll hear closing arguments from attorneys for the uh, three remaining defendants. Then the government will have one more opportunity to talk to the jury uh, since the burden of proof is on its shoulders. And then the evidence and the fate of these five defendants goes to the jury, which after hearing testimony for about seven weeks, will finally be able uh, to begin their deliberations. NPR's Ryan Lucas. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. As new COVID variants rise here in the U.S., antibodies are getting wiped off the list of treatments. NPR's Ping Huang explains why these infusion treatments didn't last and how scientists are searching for a new generation of antibodies that might. Over the pandemic, more than 3 million COVID patients have gotten infusions of antibodies to help keep them out of the hospital. Carl Diefenbach, a top official with the National Institutes of Health, says that now, with new immune-evasive COVID variants, these so-called monoclonal antibody treatments are out. Monoclonals had their day, like the Model T or like the biplane, and now it's time to move on. The antibody treatments have always had a major weakness. They're easily taken out by new COVID strains, and it's a flaw that's baked into how they work. Antibodies are tiny, Y-shaped proteins that float around in your blood. Derek Lowe, a chemist and blogger for the journal Science, says they look for very specific targets. And they're just circulating around, waiting and waiting, until they happen to bump into something that they stick to really well, and they find their soulmate, basically. Once they stick to their soulmate, in this case the SARS-CoV-2 virus, they tell the immune system to send reinforcements. Lowe says the most powerful antibodies can stop the virus in its tracks. If you have an antibody that sticks to the tip of the spike protein at the business end of the virus, just the fact that it is stuck tightly to that means the virus cannot infect a cell. But the tip of the spike protein is a fickle soulmate. It changes as the virus mutates, leaving the antibodies to drift in the bloodstream with nowhere to bind. Companies have stopped bringing these antibody treatments to market because they cost millions of dollars to develop and they're obsolete in a matter of months. So researchers are changing gears to look for antibodies that could last. Joshua Tan is head of the Antibody Biology Unit at the NIH. He showed me around his lab in Rockville, Maryland. This will actually orient the tour because I'm going to walk you through the different steps that we have. He and the researchers that work with him are taking immune cells from the blood of patients that have recovered from COVID, and they're pelting them with tiny plastic pellets covered with spike proteins from different coronaviruses. Sherelle Dakin, a postdoctoral researcher at the lab, explains. And so the spike proteins coat the surface of the bead. This is like seven uh, like different uh, coronaviruses. So. SARS-CoV-1, COVID-2, MERS, HKU1. The cells that react to several coronaviruses are reacting to a part of the spike protein that's staying the same across them. Tan says the good news is that they have found some antibodies that stick to multiple coronaviruses, and they've published results in the journal Science. But the problem that they're coming up against is that the ones that they've found are not so potent. 
Tan says if the old antibodies hit the virus on the nose, the new ones that he's finding kind of grab it in the armpit. At least one of the issues appears to be that it's harder to reach those parts. They need the spike protein to shift in its shape. It's a less direct attack, so there seems to be a trade-off between how well an antibody treatment works and how long it lasts. Tan's looking for ways around this trade-off by tweaking parts of the antibody. Luckily, as Tan and others pursue the long game, there are other treatments like Paxlovid and Remdesivir that do still work against COVID. Ping Huang, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, the U.S. and Wales face off at the World Cup in Qatar today. Both teams are making notable returns to the event. Windy, sunny, and near 40 today. Clouds move in tonight in the low 30s, clearing overnight. Then tomorrow, sunny and mid-40s. Near 50 on Wednesday and sunny. Thanksgiving should be mostly sunny with mid-40s. It's 28 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Now in business news, before you hit the road to fill up on turkey and stuffing, you'll likely need to fill up your tank with gas. And when you do, you can expect a little relief at the pump. AAA says the average cost of regular fuel in Massachusetts is $3.81 a gallon. That's down $0.04 cents compared to last week. Diesel prices are down $0.05 cents compared to a week ago. The average price is now five eighty-eight a gallon. Rhode Island-based Hasbro is selling part of its film and TV production unit, Entertainment One. Hasbro says it'll maintain certain E1 brand shows, including Peppa Pig, Transformers, and My Little Pony. The move comes less than three years after Hasbro acquired Entertainment One for nearly $4 billion. The Cape Codder Resort and Spa in Hyannis could soon be under new ownership. The resort's current owners say they've reached a tentative deal to sell to the Plymouth-based Lindquist Hotel Corporation. The price of the deal has not been made public. The Cape Cod Times reports it's expected to close early next month. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. 
Hi, it's Robin Young. As you give your year-end contributions to organizations that make the world a better place, how about putting WBUR on your list? Give a gift of cash or stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund. Even your old car can help fuel the journalism that keeps us all moving forward. Learn about all the ways to support WBUR and choose the one that's right for you, please, at WBUR.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. The U.S. men's team starts its campaign later today as part of the Soccer World Cup that kicked off yesterday in Qatar. Their first opponent in the group stage will be the tiny country of Wales, one of the four nations that together form the United Kingdom. A Welsh team has not made it to the tournament in generations, and as Villa Marx reports, fans are more than a little excited. When the Welsh men's soccer team qualified for the 2022 World Cup, fans across the small nation erupted in sometimes raucous celebrations. They had good reason to cheer their team's not taken part in a World Cup since 1958, when a goal from Brazilian superstar Pele knocked them out in a quarter-final. We've been looking forward as football fans to this for 64 years. We honestly never thought it would happen. Author, broadcaster and Welsh mega-fan Tim Hartley has supported the national soccer team his entire life. Even a year or so ago, I didn't think it was possible. But now, all my dreams have come true. All those years I've spent following Wales to strange places, taking the family to Iceland for a friendly match, going to Armenia for a week because there was only one flight out and one flight back home, taking my son out of school to go to Azerbaijan. My friends thought I was mad. My colleagues thought I was mad. Who's laughing now? I'm off to Qatar to the World Cup with my team, Wales. Hartley grew up in an era, the 1970s, when there was a world-class Welsh team, but in a different sport, rugby. Today, it's soccer's turn in the spotlight. The man now responsible for the sport in Wales is Neil Mooney, and he too recognises the historical significance for his country. We are so excited here in Doha, Qatar, as we prepare for our first game against the USA in the World Cup Finals. Uh, It's our first tournament in 64 years, so we're super excited. And it's great to be playing at the very top level, the top table of world football. The World Cup generates not just excitement, but cash too. Qualification has earned Mooney's organisation several million dollars in extra revenue, money it's already pumping into the game back home to build new facilities and strengthen grassroots teams. We're absolutely delighted that while our elite players are going onto the world stage, it's inspiring the young people of Wales to take up the game and to enjoy our beautiful sport. And beyond the game itself, he says the tournament's arrival has coincided with a growing recognition of Wales' own unique identity. There's been a renaissance in the Welsh language. There's been a renaissance in the Welsh culture and identity. And getting that message out there has been hugely supported by the Welsh government. We've got this concept called Team Cymru, Team Wales, which is about all of the activations we have both back in Wales, right across the country, but also internationally. Wales faces the US, then Iran and England in their group. Just a single win and a draw could be enough for them to continue in the contest. When they're struggling for a game and we get on their back, start cheering them, it makes a difference. Kieran Jones helps run the Welsh Football Supporters Association. Lots of countries, when you say Wales, they say, oh, is that part of England? And having England in our group has actually made it even more apparent that Wales is a country on its own recognition. It couldn't have been better in a way for identity. So watch out Team USA for Wales's spirited supporters, especially when they sing the country's national anthem, says mega-fan Tim Hartley. We've got a spirit behind us. They call it hoyle. It just means a, a good feeling in Wales, a great 
feeling behind us and that the red dragon's breathing and who knows what we can do. For NPR News, I'm Willem Marks. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Rachel Martin. Go USA! This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at how food banks providing Thanksgiving meals for families in need are coping with increased prices. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Robin Young is here in studio to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Robin. Hi to you. And we're going to have more on the news you've been reporting this morning, that terrible shooting at the, the gay bar in Colorado. I mean, people are asking, why wasn't the alleged, the reported shooter, you know, flagged sooner for mm-hmm. that bomb threat incident he was reportedly involved in, so we'll talk about that. By Bob Iger. Iger. I went to college with him. I should not have said his name. I think it's Iger. It is Iger. Bob Iger, who's back at Disney, and uh, we wish he was in our college class because he's apparently a great uh, donator to his college class. Um, We'll have all the news of the day, but also we have a conversation with Jerry Seinfeld, Uh, and not about Seinfeld, uh, the show, but about the show that he created, the Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. It's mm-hmm. a 10-year anniversary of the start of that show. Remember, he just would get a c- comic to come with him in a fancy car, and they'd go get coffee, and they'd talk. And we'd be a fly on the wall. And he'll talk about the importance of that show. And by the way, it is it, the name of the book is The Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee Book. That's the new book about the show. It's a very long title. I suggested he name it The Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee Coffee Table Book, but he reminded me Kramer. Already had a coffee table book, a book that was a coffee table. Anyway, all of that at noon. Sounds good. Thank you, Robin. That's here and now, today at noon, as Robin said. Right now, it's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season, opening this Friday. Tickets at bostonballet.org. I'm Deepa Fernandez. As you make year-end contributions to organizations that play an important role in your life and have deep impact in our community, put WBUR on your list. Support the reporting and storytelling that keep us all informed and connected. And as our thanks... Get a year of The New Yorker at a 40% savings. This is a limited time offer. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. And thank you. Lots of sun today and breezy with temperatures near 40, mostly cloudy and low 30s tonight. Right now it's 28 degrees in Boston at 852. Food banks are forced to get creative with prices rising for the stuff at the heart of Thanksgiving. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by the United States Postal Service, offering holiday postage stamps for purchase at more than 40,000 supermarkets, drugstores, office suppliers, and wholesale clubs. I'm David Brancaccio. First, the value of Walt Disney Company stock is getting quite a boost this morning in pre-market trading here. After a surprise move yesterday, Disney's board ousted Chief Executive Bob Chapek and brought back in Robert Iger, who Chapek had replaced just two years ago. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with the latest. Yeah, this move from Disney's board was a surprise, David, because Bob Chapek's contract was just renewed over the summer. This change was apparently not something insiders expected. There are reports that other Disney executives were caught off guard. 
But the board had been facing some pressure to act. Disney is in somewhat of a slump. Its stock is down more than 40 percent this year. And at least one activist investor has been circling and wanting changes. The board is tasking Iger with turning the company around. All right. Uh, Any clues how he will do that? That's a tough call. Uh, Iger has two years, and in that time, he's got to develop a successor and essentially get the company's mojo back, David, because under Chapek, there have been some stumbles. Disney's latest quarterly results disappointed with its streaming division burning through cash. It has yet to be profitable. Um, And Chapek made some other missteps, too. A very public one was surrounding Florida and its so-called don't say gay bill. At first, Chapek didn't want to talk about it. And then that upset a lot of the company's employees. Then he did talk about it and clashed with Florida's governor. Now Bob Iger is tasked with getting the company back on track, basically, and get it growing again. When he was in charge last time, Iger grew Disney by buying other companies, Marvel, Lucasfilm, and others. And he launched Disney Plus, which now we'll have to figure out how to make profitable, David. All right, Nova, thank you. Disney's stock is up 10% in pre-market trading now. And if Disney makes you think cartoons... Here's this image, the Hanna-Barbera coyote off the cliff, but hanging in thin air for a moment before, you know, that's the apparent status of what was to have been a big publishing merger, the ill-fated Penguin Random House bid to buy rival Simon & Schuster hanging out there this morning, but you know where it's going. The answer is probably down after Simon & Schuster's parent company, Paramount Global, reportedly decided not to keep pushing the deal forward. This after a judge stopped the merger on antitrust grounds. This according to the New York Times. Pandemic concern hit the stock exchange in Hong Kong today, where the key index fell nearly 2%. This after Hong Kong's chief executive, John Lee, tested positive for COVID. He had just returned from the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum in Bangkok, where he met with Chinese President Xi Jinping, among others. Lee's diagnosis comes as mainland China reported its first COVID deaths since May. The BBC's Martin Yip has more from Hong Kong. Mr. Lee was eager to make the point that Hong Kong has returned to the international stage after COVID travel disruption and the 2019 anti-government protests. He was photographed next to his boss, President Xi, without a mask and also met the Indonesian President Joko Widodo and Prime Minister Lee Hsien Loong of Singapore on the sidelines of the APEC summit. The government insists that Mr. Lee tested negative for COVID every day in Bangkok, but that changed when he returned home. The deaths in Beijing are the first to be officially acknowledged since May, though no lockdown is in place. Martin Yip reporting from Hong Kong for our editorial partner, the BBC. Dow futures are down a tenth of a percent, 30 points, about a half hour here before the opening of the stock market. S&P futures are down four tenths percent. NASDAQ futures, let's see, down five tenths percent. Crude oil is below $80 a barrel on the bet that a slowing world economy needs less fossil fuel to run. The 10-year interest rate down slightly, 3.81 percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business is dedicated to simplifying the process of buying supplies. And by Fidelity Investments, introducing Fidelity Income Planning. Build a plan for income that lasts. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. 
Food banks distributing Thanksgiving provisions are dealing with double-digit price increases for some key items. Potatoes up 15 percent, pie up 19 percent, turkeys up 17 percent. The food banks are thinking creatively and making some trade-offs. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes has more from downtown Baltimore. It's a few days before Thanksgiving, and James Bobbitt's ushering people into the nonprofit Beans and Bread. Good morning. How you doing, sir? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's mostly men, but a few women, and the occasional kid who are coming in for a free meal. The center also has a food bank. Victoria Zeji, the volunteer coordinator, walks me through the bustling kitchen. We have breakfast, lunch. Our breakfast time is 8.30 to 9.30. To a quieter space. So here's our food pantry. Brown paper bags are lined up on the floor with Thanksgiving ingredients inside. In the past, Beans and Bread has given away up to 300 bags. This year, they only have the donations so far to make about 115. We have pumpkin or apple pies that will go in them, some canned goods such as potatoes, greens. There's also usually a turkey, but this year, that's not a given. It's cheaper with chicken, so some of our donors are resorting to um, buying chicken. If they run out of whole birds, they'll ask donors to buy sliced turkey to make sandwiches as a last resort. Because food prices have gone up so much, donors' dollars just don't go as far. The amount of food that is donated right now into the charitable food system does not meet the demand for food assistance. Katie Fitzgerald leads Feeding America, a network of food banks around the country. Food banks really had a lot of support through the pandemic with government assistance. A lot of those funds are drying up. That means more food banks are dipping into their reserve funds to buy food, which Fitzgerald says isn't sustainable. Back at Beans and Bread, James Bobbitt, who was once homeless himself, says people will be grateful for whatever's in their Thanksgiving bags. Some people like turkey sandwiches instead of sliced turkey or off the bird. Me, I love turkey, period. So I'm going to eat whatever they bring. It's a blessing. Hello? Because right now, both food pantries and the people they serve are trying to make do with less. In Baltimore, I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. And I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's going to be sunny and windy today. Temperatures won't rise past 40. Some clouds move in tonight and temperatures fall to the low 30s. Clearing overnight, then sunny and mid-40s tomorrow and sunny and near 50 on Wednesday. Thanksgiving should be mostly sunny with mid-40s. Right now, it's 28 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Give the gift of a Thanksgiving meal. Donate at gbfb.org slash WBUR. Last year at this time, retailers had high demand, but stock was in short supply. This year... We're in a situation where they've purchased so much to try to avoid any type of risk situation that now they have all this excessive inventory on their books. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store. The inventory glut and what it means for your holiday shopping. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app 
or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.